0: Turn your Bibles, we are going to be starting in the book of James, book of James chapter 1. And as you're turning there, before the show started at the theater, an usher noticed a man sprawled across four seats. Sir, you're only allowed one seat. Could you please sit up? The man groaned, but stayed where he was. The usher started to get impatient. Sir, if you don't get up, I'll need to call my manager. Again, the man just groaned. A few moments later, the infuriated usher returned with his manager. They both repeatedly attempted to get the man to move, but with no success. The manager decided to call the police. The police officer arrived, and he said, Okay, buddy, what's your name? The man groaned, Matt. And where are you from, Matt? Matt replied, The balcony. (laughs) Poor Matt. Anyhow, the book of James is one of the top go-to books when it comes to living for God. Amen? It's a book that's full of energy. It's a book that's full of encouragement. It's a book that gives us real good practical instructions On how to apply our faith. And that's important. How to apply our faith in everyday living. In other words, in bottom line, it shows us how to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Amen? We need some context to really fully understand the book of James before we start reading. And at this time when when the book of James was written, the church was under just immense persecution and just outright brutality against Christians. Now, these early believers, they literally feared for their lives and for the lives of their family members. And this fear was causing believers to live a life of faith only in word and not in action. They were fearing man more than fearing God. True and real Christianity was quickly vanishing at that time. And it was here that God calls upon and inspires James to write this letter. It's a letter that challenges every true believer, even today, to live a life of applied faith. Applied faith. So what does it look like when we live a life that puts faith into practice? That's that's the most important question. What does it look like when we live a life that puts faith into practice? Now, before we can answer that, we need to establish a few uh, facts, a few truths. First and foremost, at the very moment of salvation, several things become true in our lives. Now, some of these things pertain to our eternal inheritance— Okay, eternal inheritance in heaven, and others pertain to our daily experiences. Okay, so in relation to our eternal inheritance, we receive our eternal inheritance at the moment of salvation, but we don't experience it until we get to glory. Amen? We understand that? It's ours, the very moment of salvation, but we really don't experience it until we enter glory. It also never changes. Amen? We have to understand that our eternal inheritance never changes. It is eternally secure in God's almighty hands. Amen? Can never lose it, can never be taken away. And this inheritance has been established by God alone. We have to understand that there's nothing required from us. And right now, it's only visible to God and not to us. That's our eternal inheritance. Now, we also have to understand and contrast that to our daily experiences. Our daily experiences. At the moment of salvation, our Christian walk begins with Christ in us. Amen? Christ in us. We are given His Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. And as we give Jesus control of our life, we begin to experience things like power in our prayer, a hunger to to get into God's Word. We start understanding what true worship is. We start feeling a conviction of sin, spiritual growth, and practical biblical insight. Amen? Now, these daily experiences, they relate to our earthly walk. And they determine the depth of our fellowship with God. Those daily experiences, they also develop, they they grow as we mature in our faith. Now, something else we need to understand. Although sin has no effect on our eternal inheritance... Remember, that can never change. Sin will hinder our daily walk and our fellowship with God, our daily experiences. Growth in these areas of our daily experiences will come only when we lean on, when we learn to depend on God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, Christ in us, when we learn to lean and depend on God's Holy Spirit inside of us. Amen? That's when growth occurs. Now, all of our daily experiences are visible both to God and us. Not like our eternal inheritance. Right now, it's only visible to God. Our daily experiences can be seen by both God and us. Okay, So that's kind of the, the, the contrast between the two. So our eternal inheritance kind of understand that is our position in Christ. Amen? Our eternal inheritance is our position in Christ, while our daily experiences, that's our daily walk with Christ. Amen? Kind of our practice in Christ. Eternal inheritance is our position in Christ. Our daily experiences, that's our practice, our daily, everyday practice in Christ. Now it's important to understand the differences between them as we begin to to look into the book of James. Now in this book God is addressing issues in our daily experiences. God is addressing issues in our daily walk with Jesus Christ. It's not a book that deals with our eternal inheritance in Christ. Amen. We have to understand that dis- difference. And as we read the Bible, we notice two prominent themes throughout the entire book, from Genesis to Revelation. Two prominent themes. The first is the way to God, amen, and the other is the walk with God. Those are the two prominent themes in all of the Bible, the way to God and the walk with God. Now, all 66 books contain these two themes. So every time you read the Bible, every time you study the Bible, you have to ask yourself, is this passage referring to the way to God, or is what I'm reading teaching me how to walk with God? Amen? Two themes. The way to God is directed to the unsaved. It's directed to those who are lost, those who are spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. It gives them, it shows them the way to God. And that's simple, all right? It's through Jesus Christ, and Him alone. Now, the walk with God is directed to the true born-again believer in Christ, the Christian saint. Amen? Now, I want you to note something here. That this may surprise many of us. The books of the New Testament are overflowing with these two themes. But the majority deal with teaching the believer how to walk with God. Amen? You know, a lot of times we, we think of the Bible as just, you know, the way to God. And absolutely it is. There is no other way that we can find to God than Through the written word, which directs us to his living word, Jesus Christ. Amen? Faith comes by what? Hearing the word of God. Amen? So absolutely, the Bible is the way to God. But the writings in the Bible, the majority in the New Testament, deal with teaching us, teaching the believer, how to walk with God. Amen? And the book of James is absolutely no different. It deals primarily with our walk with God. Now, here's some interesting facts about the book of James. It's not a book of doctrine. Amen? The book of James is not a book of doctrine, as the name of our Lord is used only two times in the entire book. Twice. Twice. His cross, nor his, his resurrection are never mentioned. Amen? Never mentioned in the book of James. The Holy Spirit of God is never mentioned. It's simply a book of practicality. It's a book of practicality that assumes we already know the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Again, it's directed to the believer, and it assumes that we already know the doctrine. Its purpose is to drive home the importance of living like we know the truth. Amen? In other words, it asks one probing question, and I want you to pay attention. If we say that we believe like we should, why do we behave like we shouldn't? Amen? That is the one probing question throughout the book of James. If we claim Jesus Christ, the Father of truth, why do we live after the devil, the Father of lives? Amen? That is that one probing question throughout the entire book of James. Now, I believe it's also important for us to know a little more about James himself, about the one that God called the one that God used, the one that God inspired to write this book. Amen? So let's look at James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get a lot there, don't we? The writer simply identifies himself as James. He says, I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we need to understand, and we're going to look a little bit more, get some more facts and truth. This James just happens to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Amen? He was raised in the same home that Jesus was. But what we need to understand He was not like Jesus growing up. Amen? Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Skip down to verse 53. Matthew 13, skipping down to verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there And when he had come to where? His own country. I want you to pay attention to that. When Jesus had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. So I want you to to note here, first and foremost, that Mary and Joseph indeed had other children. Amen? Amen. There's a lot of debate out there, and there's a, a lot of false doctrine that says Jesus was their only child, but we see right here that that's not true. Mary and Joseph had other children. And in this passage in Matthew 13, we see here that Jesus goes back home. Amen? It says here that when he had come into his own country, he went back home, so to speak. They recognize him as Joseph the carpenter and, and Mary's son. They recognized him as the brother of James, Joseph, uh, Simon, Judas, and his unnamed sisters. They were astonished at his new wisdom, his new power, his new authority that he spoke with. And that as he declared that he was much more than just a carpenter's son. Amen. They were amazed. They were astonished. The James in verse 55. And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. The James listed in verse 55 is the same James that wrote the book of James that we're looking in today. This would make Jesus James' older brother. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Parents, we, all, we know all too well about older siblings, don't we, right? Were any of you an older brother or sister? All right, shame on you. We know how you treated your younger brothers and sisters, right? The older siblings, especially brothers... They handle things differently, don't they? They don't babysit. They guard. They don't take you for a walk. They take you for a march. Amen? Isn't that what the older siblings do? So now think of James' situation. His older brother was Jesus Christ. Think about that. A big brother that was completely perfect. A big brother that never ever sinned. A big brother that always obeyed his parents. Every time he called, he came. Every time they asked him to do something, he did it. An older brother who always kept his room spotless and clean. An older brother who was never late for anything. An older brother who never talked back to his parents, who never disrespected them one day in his entire life. Can you imagine the jealousy that must have overflowed in James as he was growing up? I want you to think about that, right? Right? Our older brothers and sisters, they told us they were perfect, but we knew better, right? He actually was. And now that same perfect brother just came back home and he declares, "I am Messiah." So kind of put ourselves in James's shoes. Put ourselves in his situation. That's a lot to take, isn't it? How do you think he was received? Let's go to Mark chapter 3. So Jesus left for a little bit of time, comes back home, and he declares, I am Messiah. Right in the synagogue. I am this promised Messiah that you've been waiting for. Let's see how they received him. Mark chapter 3, skip down to verse 20. Start with the multitude. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Something said about most preachers, right? He's out of his mind. So, starts with the multitude. They were so upset, it says, when they gathered there, they couldn't even eat because of his declaration. Then it filters down, but when his own people heard about this, when he came home, he came back, where? To Nazareth. And his own people, his own countrymen, the people who lived in his own city, they knew his dad, the carpenter. They knew his mom, Mary. They saw him grow up. They knew his brother, James and Jonas. And some of this, his own people, was his own relatives. What did they say? He's out of his mind. Well... That's distant relatives, right? That's the multitude. That's some distant relatives. That's the the other Nazarites. What about his family? Go to John chapter 7. One verse, verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe him. Even his own brothers thought that he was out of his mind. And I believe that was the case all throughout his entire earthly ministry, including his death and his resurrection. His own brothers did not believe his claims to be Messiah. Amen? I don't believe anything changed in James. Nothing changed in his heart until Jesus visited with him after his resurrection. And I believe that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Skip down to verse 7. After that, he, Jesus, was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now, me also, who's the writer in this first letter to Corinthians? The Apostle Paul, right? And he says, as one born due out of time, meaning he wasn't one of the original disciples of Christ, right? He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. As he was going there with a letter from the high priest to arrest, kill, whatever he needed to do to to Christians. But what I want you to see here. After that he was seen by James. It was at that moment that James's heart was softened by the grace of God. It was at that moment that James believed. And he humbled his heart. At his brother's feet. And he accepted him. His older brother. His half brother. As his savior. And his lord. He no longer saw Jesus. As that half brother. When he saw the risen Christ. He saw Messiah. And it was then that his heart was softened by the grace of God. Amen? We need to understand what a beautiful and tender moment that had to be. Now I want you to notice, the thing I want you to see here in this verse is how Jesus sought out James. How is he listed? Is he listed in a group? Or is he listed by himself? You see, Jesus sought out James personally, one-on-one. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, seeking out his half-brother one-on-one. And here's the best part. That's how he seeks every single one of us. Amen? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God himself, he seeks all of us. One on one. Amen? He loves us so deeply that he calls upon our heart one on one. It's a personal call. And the question is, what will we do when Jesus calls upon our heart? We have two choices. We can ignore and reject him, but understand that we will see him again one-on-one. But that one-on-one will be on Judgment Day. Or we can receive him as Savior and Lord and enter into the joys of his salvation. That choice is ours. What will we do when Jesus calls upon our heart one on one?